Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 18. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights to the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So I now have the privilege of introducing Jeff Malott, and he has been going to Regen for a couple of years now, he and his wife. He graduated from Golden Gate University and has a Master's in Divinity, and he's also started the refugee program here at Regen, so please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I am very grateful to be here and honored. As she said, I'm Jeff. I am a retail sales associate and sometimes preacher at Regeneration Church. Did you guys have a good Christmas? Most everybody? Some people? Good. Does anyone in here like Christmas music? Zach? Sometimes math? All right. Yeah, I am so grateful that four days ago we celebrated the end of Christmas music in our store. (laughs) From October 31st until December 24th, it was nothing but Santa Claus is coming to town. And last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave it away. (laughs) What is up with that girl? She's got a bad Christmas tradition. Anyway, in order to fight the triviality of all the songs that are now stuck in my head and on repeat, I decided it would be appropriate to dig into a passage There was of great consequence, which also includes what may have been the very first Christmas song ever. Kind of cool. I didn't know that, actually, when I first picked the passage. But um, many commentators believe that part of this passage is an actual early Christian hymn or doctrinal saying that the church adopted very early on. And so we will get into that. Secondly, I also wanted to say the title of my sermon is The Consequences of Christmas. If you listen to the passage, you notice there were a lot of commands or a lot of imperatives that Paul was spewing out towards the church. And the reason being is that 
This, the song part that we'll look at, is about Christmas. It's about Christ coming to earth in the form of a tiny little baby in a manger and uh, what that means, the implications of those beliefs in our lives. Paul Chamberlain wrote a book once called Can We Be Good Without God? And in it, he says, ideas have consequences. And he says, and when you get married to an idea, the consequences are sort of like the in-laws. You don't get to choose who they are or how they arrive. They're just there. And whether you like them or not, you're going to have to live with them for a long time. And so tonight we're going to explore the consequences of believing in Christmas, in the incarnation of God. So that's my message today. And what it boils down to, if you get nothing else, get this one sentence. I'll have you repeat it with me. If you believe the story of Christmas, you guys are great, then consider Christ's example and follow his lead. If you believe the story of Christmas, then consider Christ's example and follow his lead. That's it. And it sort of makes sense, too, because if you believe that this tiny little baby that was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger is the incarnate God, God in the flesh, then whatever that baby does for the rest of his life is perfect, is the standard to be followed, to be looked up to and pursued. And so, thankfully, we had the Apostle Paul who laid out six implications for us for what that means. So let's dig in. Passage starts out, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. It's a lot of ifs. If all these things, then implications. And I want to stop here and say, this message is for Christians who have experienced God's love. If that's not you, then you get to sit back, chillax, and listen to a message about what all your Christian friends have to do. (laughs) Or... Or get to do, and the consequences of what it would be like to be a Christian and believe in Christ. But yeah, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, these are all very spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about. It's not like, did you eat at Crossroads this morning? Or have you ever uh, had been counseled by a member of the church or something like that? No, it's, do you know that God loves you? Do you know what he did for you? Do you know how much he values you? Working in a retail environment, I know that the value of something is what someone is willing to pay for it. And if there's a dented corner or a uh, marking on the box, it's a discount. You can bargain your way at the register. Your value as human beings is the same. You are worth... God's only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This message is for people who know and understand their value in Christ. So if that's you, listen up. If not, then consider what the consequences of believing such a gospel might be. Because just as you'd want to meet your in-laws before marrying your fiancé, 
it's probably a good idea to consider the consequences of beliefs before stepping into uh, that belief. All right. He says, complete my joy. This is a personal appeal from the Apostle Paul. When he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, he's assuming, he's making a very big assumption, that the Philippians actually want him to be joyful. That's a bold assumption. Now, why can he make that assumption? A little background to this story, the letter of Philippi. Uh, Paul's first missionary trip to Philippi, he went down to the river, found a lady who was praying named Lydia, and told her about Christ gave her the gospel. She believed. She was baptized. I think he cast out a demon from a servant girl, and the master of the servant girl was very mad because the servant girl was making her money. And so he rallied a mob. They beat Paul. They put him in prison. The jailer got saved, and then they came and released him and chased him out of the city. And that was it. That was Paul's visit to Philippi. And so now Paul is in Rome in a prison again, for preaching the same message and checking in with the Philippians, with the church that grew in Philippi, and he wants to see how they did. In fact, the whole first chapter is about them experiencing the same kind of persecution that he experienced. Um, Seems like Philippi was a little bit of a hostile environment for the gospel in the first century. And so... Uh, He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why does he say that? He says, because if you do that, when your enemies attack you and you show that they can't drive a wedge in between you and your fellow Christians, it's showing them that you're living differently, that you have Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you. Uh, showing them that you are not relying on your own strength, but on God. So he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. At the same time, in, in the first chapter, Paul mentions that there were some preachers in Rome that were trying to stir up trouble for him. He was in Rome for preaching the gospel, and I think there were some Judaizers, some people who wanted all these new Christians and his converts to become like Jews. And so they took Paul's message and sort of twisted it and started preaching it to try and stir up trouble for him and get the Romans to execute him. And he's like, they're preaching the gospel. I'm happy. As long as the gospel is going out, I'm happy. He says, but now he's saying to the Philippians, don't do that. Don't have that same attitude. Do nothing out of that selfish ambition or vain conceit. He says, but instead... If you preach, consider others as more important than yourselves. Or if you serve, consider others more important than yourselves. Have this attitude about you. This is the same mind that I want you to have. In the first chapter, he says the same thing. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what he's saying, all these things I'm about to tell you, this is what sets you apart. This is what sets you apart from the world around you. 
And if you're not a Christian and you're wondering, why should I become a Christian? Like, what's so different about Christians? Would I really have to live any different? What, what is this? If I believe this one thing, is it really going to make any difference? These are the implications. He says, stick close to your Christian family. Be one in mind and heart and undergo persecution with joy even and unity. So that's the first thing that ought to set Christians apart. And so now uh, he goes in and says, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ. So what mind is it that they should have? And this is where he starts to dig in, and many commentators believe that uh, he's quoting from an early Christian hymn. He says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have you ever wondered why God sent foreigners to greet baby Jesus? Like the only ones who greeted baby Jesus were uh, these three or maybe two magi from the east who are watching the stars and say, hey, king of the Jews is being born right over there. I want to go meet him and worship him. And then some shepherds or, or shepherdesses, most likely at the time they would have been teenage, preteen girls. So you got some preteen girls going and checking out this baby in a manger and trying to figure out what it's all about. And you got these guys from the east who were watching the stars and saying, yes, this is the king of the Jews. We're going to go worship him. And somehow they got it, that king of the Jews could be a tiny little baby born to a poor family. One of my theories about that is that God probably couldn't trust the Israelites who were there (laughs) at the time. Because... The Israelites who knew the scriptures were watching and waiting for the kingdom of God to enter into existence, into Israel. In the book of Daniel, it lays out four kingdoms, a prophecy of four kingdoms rising and falling. And at the end of the fourth kingdom, God would uproot all these kings and all these kingdoms, establish his kingdom that would last for all of eternity, and there would be peace. And so what were the Jews expecting in terms of a Messiah? God coming down, wiping out all their enemies, overthrowing the Romans, and making life easy for the Jews. They weren't expecting a tiny little baby in a manger. But why? Why Why did God come as a baby? He came, according to this passage, to set us an example that we could follow, to take away any and all excuses we have. No longer could anyone say, you know, that's nice, God, I love your commands, but uh, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be down here. It's like, you can't say that anymore. You see a baby in a manger, you know, just kind of staring up, googly-eyed, like drool coming down, like, you know, not even able to talk. That's God! You know, can't even change his own diaper. That's God. Though he was in a form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He knew he was God. 
He knew who he was, and so he was able to take on flesh and become like a baby. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, that's the song. Did you notice in that passage that he became obedient? Now, why obedience? Paul mentions this too. Why is obedience the one thing that God says, this is going to separate you from those around you? This is what's going to make you shine like stars in the universe. Isn't that usually how most people find out that you're a Christian? By what you're willing to do or not do. When my wife and I were still dating, we decided one day to go have some froyo at a local frozen yogurt place by the seminary. And one of our friends worked there. We said, oh, well, maybe she's working there. Maybe we can go and see if she's there. Well, she wasn't there. We got the froyo. We sat down. And it became a very awkward frozen yogurt date because all of a sudden all these teenage girls who are working behind the counter start talking about their co-worker who was our friend saying you know do you know that girl who works here she's like yeah yeah she's she's getting married and she says that she's saving herself for her husband she's like 30 she's like can you believe that this girl is 30 and she hasn't had sex and these girls are just you know, kind of snickering, and April and I are sitting there like, maybe we should take our froyo outside and enjoy it. But that's what people talk about. That's what the world talks about, and that's what separates Christians from those around them. It's by what you're willing to do or not do. It makes you different. So Christ set us an example by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. And I want to take a look at that passage as well. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Yeah, Lord, I have a will. My will is not to go to that cross. <laughs> but not my will, thine be done. Lord, if there's no other way. If I have to drink this cup, I'll drink it. Thy will, not mine, be done. He was modeling for us what it looks like to be obedient. These two are very positive examples. Christ, as well as my friend, at seminary, I want to show you also what the alternative looks like and the implications of disobedience. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because according to the book of Genesis, you and I were not actually created to be our own masters. We were created to be in fellowship with God. He gets to determine what's right and wrong, and we say, Yes, Lord, I trust you. You're good. Whatever you say is good, I'll do it. Whatever you say is not good, I won't do it. We kind of messed that up, said, I want to be our own masters. I want to get to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves. And what does the Bible say we end up doing? He says in chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we 
all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He lists three things that people become obedient to. The course of this world, so he says, you're going to look around you to see what everyone else is doing, and chances are you'll probably do something very similar. He says, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, or following your own flesh, the desires of the body. Whatever your heart desires, whatever your mind desires, whatever your flesh desires, that is what you do. You'll be your own master. He says, you don't have a choice of whether or not you're going to be obedient. But with Christ, you have the choice to obey God. I want to give you an example also from sociology. There was a sociologist named Stanley Milgram in the 1970s that ran a very controversial experiment. What he did was he took participants, just randomly selected, and said, I want to test out the effects of electroshock therapy on learning and learning behaviors. And so what he told his participants was, okay, well, one of you will be chosen to be the student, and then one of you will be chosen to be the teacher. And when the student gets a question wrong, the teacher will have to press a button that will send an electric shock through the student's body to see if it helps him learn. And so the students were like, okay, they all accepted payment, and then one by one they would go into a room and they would meet who they thought was another participant who happened to be an actor. Thankfully, there was no electricity going through the system. The actor would simply yell out and give shrieks of pain and see how far these participants were willing to go. I want to read you a little bit of the excerpts from his experiment. The actor-learner was strapped into a kind of electric chair and assured in the subject's presence that though the shocks could be extremely painful, they would cause no permanent tissue damage. The subject, in turn, was placed before an imposing shock generator said to be connected to the learner. Some of these participants were in the room with the learner, actually watching him. Some of them were in a separate room. This generator featured a long horizontal row of switches labeled in voltages ranging from 15 volts at the top to 450 volts, with groups of the switches additionally designated as slight shock, moderate shock, strong shock, intense shock, up to danger, severe shock, and finally to a simple and ominous sounding XXX. Milgram's technicians arranged as well for an authentic sounding buzzer to buzz, a voltage meter needle to swing to and fro and relay clicks to accompanying the pressing of switches. And during the test, the actor, who of course was actually receiving no shocks at all, proved to be a most unpromising student. Out of every four questions, he got about three wrong. After each miss, the experimenter instructed the subject to shock the learner with the next highest jolt, beginning at 15 volts and moving up through 30 levels to the maximum 450 volts, and to announce before each shock the present level of voltage. Naturally, many subjects found their role in this drama progressively upsetting. Thus, when they turned questioningly to the experimenter, he prodded them as necessary with a sequence of increasingly authoritative commands. Please continue. Then, the experiment requires that you continue. 
then it is absolutely essential that you continue. And finally, you have no other choice. You must go on. So what were the results of this experiment? If the actor was not in the same room as the participant, about 60% of the people were willing to send the voltage electric chair up to 450 volts. That's like everyone over here, if you were in the room, I would be toast. 30% even did it with the participant actor in the room, watching him act out the shock. What Milgram found was that we, as humans, when we believe ourselves to be under someone else's authority, we mysteriously cease to feel culpable for our actions. And we say things like, I was just obeying orders. Or I had to. The scientist, the man in the white coat, he told me I had to. In the Nuremberg trials after World War II, they found the exact same thing. There were a lot of people all throughout Germany who were doing what they were doing simply because they were told to and obeying orders. And they had a very difficult time finding anybody who actually issued the orders. Interesting. There were, however, a couple of exceptions to this experiment. And it really made Stanley Milgram mad, so I kind of like reading them. One, Jan Rensselaer, a 32-year-old engineer and a member of the Dutch Reformed Church, responded to the experimental's final prod, you have no choice, by saying indignantly, I do have a choice. I can't continue. I've gone too far already. Probably. Another, an Old Testament professor at a major divinity school, balked at 150 volts, claiming that God's authority superseded and trivialized that of the experimenter. With astonishing ungratefulness, Milgram remarks that the professor had merely substituted divine for human authority instead of altogether repudiating authority in this situation. That's exactly what Paul wants you to do in this passage. He wants you to make up your minds beforehand, before you get into the pressure situation, that you will follow and obey God rather than men. So that when you're in a room with a white coat scientist, you say, no, I will not shock the participant learner with 150 volts. Or when you get in a situation where you can rise up the corporate ladder by pushing others down, you say, no, that's not the example that Christ set. I refuse to do so. Whatever it might be, Paul advises us in this passage. He says the time to make those decisions is now. It's not when you're in that situation. Make it in the peace, in the mind of your heart, to obey Christ in those situations. All right. So thankfully, mercifully, God gives us a fourth option. We don't have to obey the world, our flesh, or the devil. We can choose now to obey God. All right, the fourth command, work out. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there's that word again, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Let's pause there for a second. Most things that have to do with fear and trembling are usually not good. But Paul here is talking about something that's very good. Where he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now why should that cause fear and trembling? He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What he means by work out is saying, consider the implications of your salvation. Just what we're doing tonight. And the only thing I can think of that would cause fear and trembling, I'm going to use a negative example to give you a positive one with what Paul's actually talking about. My dad became a diabetic, was diagnosed with diabetes like maybe three, four years ago, and he started getting these magazines about diabetes. It was, I I forget what it was called, but um, I saw an article in there about Halle Berry. I didn't know that she was a diabetic. So I picked it up, and I was just like, hmm, I wonder what Halle Berry has to say. And she says, diabetes, being diagnosed with it at an early age, was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. And she quoted a Chinese proverb that says, one disease, long life, no disease, short life. The idea was, if you're diagnosed with a disease, and you know exactly how you're supposed to take care of it, and you're diligent about it, and you live in that certain lifestyle, and you watch your sugar intake, and you exercise, and you do all these things, you're going to live a long and prosperous life. If, however, you have no disease, or you have no specifications or stipulations about how you live, and you have all avenues open to you, then what's to keep you from eating as much sugar you want, or living vicariously with joining a circus or something like that? (laughs) You know, no disease is short life. And so, because in Halle Berry, something inside her had changed, namely her pancreas stopped functioning the way it should, her entire lifestyle changed. And so here, with the gospel, Paul is saying, the thing that is inside you that is changing is what God is working in you, is Holy Spirit. And whatever you put inside you, I want to call it like a Holy Spirit virus almost, but like a good virus. It says this virus will cause you to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And that will cause fear and trembling when you consider the example that God set. Consider who it is you follow. If you believe the Christmas story, then your God lived a poor life among fishermen, smelly fishermen, (laughs) worked hard, healed many, died on a cross, painful death, but was raised again. That's not an easy act to follow. Thankfully, we don't have to go exactly that route. Paul just says, have this mind of Christ in you. All right, one, two, three, four. Fifth one, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So fifth imperative, do all things without grumbling. That's strange. He says, this is what's going to set you apart. Now why did he pick that example, grumbling or disputing? Or these words like a twisted, crooked generation without blemish. He was actually quoting from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. 
At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has this gripe against his own generation, saying, these people are blemished. They are crooked and depraved and have turned against God's Son, and they are the reason why I am stuck here dying in the wilderness, and I don't get to go into the promised land. And so what Paul is saying, don't be like those guys. He's reminding them of the example of these Israelites who failed to work out the implications of their salvation. God had saved them from Egypt, drowned all of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, saved them from slavery, provided for them 40 years in the desert, and it never sunk into their heads that they ought to trust him, that he was out for their good. Instead, they would grumble at every chance they get. So Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. That's not easy, especially when us Christians work in places that are not ideal, not heaven-like. You know, many people work under bosses or managers who are less than congratulatory when you are successful and more than disdainful when you make mistakes. (laughs) Paul says, bless them. Do your job without grumbling against them. It'll set you apart and make you different than everyone else around you. If he's a harsh boss, or she's a harsh boss, there's probably a lot of other employees under that boss who are complaining. If you make sure that you're not one of them, that sets you apart. People are going to want to know why. Why is that girl so happy? It says it makes you shine like stars in the universe. Holding fast to the word of life, So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast to the word of life. When they notice that you're different, when they ask you why you're different, hold out to them the word of life, the gospel. All right, last command. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he starts the passage out saying, make my joy complete. He says, if you get this, it'll cause you joy. Rejoice. Uh, Verse 17, what is all this about poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith? What he's talking about, he says, even if I'm toast because of the gospel I preach to you, because of the gospel I'm in prison for, In Romans, even if Caesar says, I want to see this guy in the Colosseum fighting lions, he says, even if that happens, I rejoice. I am glad. Why? Because he's doing the very thing that he asked the Philippians to do. He's considering them greater than himself. He's saying, I rejoice. Why? Because if you get this, if you begin to consider others better than yourselves and have in you the mind of Christ, then my job's done. I'm just one. There'll be like hundreds of you, little Christs, roaming about Caesarea Philippi, serving others, doing it joyfully and not grumbling about it. This works. This really works. 
And if you can't marvel at the story of Christ coming down, taking the form of a servant, marvel at some of the people that are around you. Marvel at youth workers. When I started going to seminary in 2007, the Barna Group came out with a study called Faith in America. And in that study, they found that about 80% of people who believe and call themselves Christian came to faith between the ages of 8 and 13. That's it. That means 80% of what Pastor Albert does and what happens in this room on Sunday mornings is building on someone else's foundation, on the foundation that someone laid. That's astonishing. But think about it, too. If you had kids, you could bring them every Sunday morning, drop them off at the church in Sunday school, and go have coffee, never pay a tithe, and, you know, kick back, enjoy the pregame show, or whatever, and come pick up your kid two hours later. And, you know... Maybe someone would mention something to you, but they would do that. And in fact, that's exactly what happens every summer across America. It's called VBS. Parents find themselves having to go to work in the summertime. Their kids are home. They think, man, what am I going to do with kids? And they'd be like, hey, Joe, did you hear that the church down the street? They're like taking kids in all day. They take them for the whole day and the kids stay out of trouble. This is, well, isn't it, what do they do with them? Like, are they trying to, like, do they eat kids? Like, what do they do with the kids? It's like, no, they don't eat the kids. My kid came back fine yesterday. Like, she was singing some annoying songs. But I figure, you know, she'll forget the songs. And, and uh, you know, I mean, shoot. Yeah, they seem to actually like it. And the workers liked it, too. That's amazing. That works. When you start serving people in that sense, people start wondering. And by the way, those songs, they stick. Uh, Working in the Create Container Store, it also happens to be a safe haven for prominent members of the homosexual community in San Francisco, one of which I found myself having a very interesting conversation with on an overnight shift. I mentioned to my friend that I was working with youth at the time. And he's like, oh, really? You're a youth worker? You work with Young Life? And he's like, I went to camp. And he starts singing to me the song. They're like, Noah, he built them, he built them, and Arky, Arky. And I'm like, like, you try and share the gospel with this guy, he'll think you're evil, you know? Or he'll, he'll, he'll never talk to you for like a week. And here he is sitting in, you know, across the table from me, singing the song of the first time God saved the world. Those songs stick. Those kids who went to VBS know what's up, have a witness within them, even 50 years later. So if you can't marvel at the example of Christ who came to earth 2,000 years ago, marvel at the youth workers, marvel at the people who get this, who are serving others. Marvel at the people who go and work in the, the refugee classes or the interns who come here and serve at Regen. That makes no sense on any resume, ever, <laughs> Like, what are you going to write? Like, uh, you know, your boss will be looking at it and say, well, I like your education. Um, I like your volunteer experience. What's this, like, one-year gap? You said you lived at the church and helped out with stuff. Like, (laughs) that doesn't make sense. The interns are here and doing what they're doing for this very reason. 
to strive to work out the implications of their faith and learn how to serve others. If you get that, you believe the gospel story. If you believe that God is working in you to make you more like his son, and rejoice. Not because it's going to be easy or pleasant, but because God's word and his kingdom is going forth. Because the more you do that, the more little Christs will be running around the world spreading the gospel and bringing God's kingdom. Application. So if that's you, if you've been blessed, if you know that God loves you, if you believe the story of Christmas, I want you to go find someone this week. If it's someone you don't particularly like, all the better. And ask God how you can consider them, consider their needs above your own. Mark 10.23 says that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you believe the Christmas story, I ask you, who is it? Who are you giving your life as a ransom for? Who is God put on your heart. Maybe you're not there yet, but if you got Holy Spirit in you, that's where you're headed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Lord, that you gave us your son, not because we asked for him, not because we thought we needed him, but because you knew, Lord, that we needed a blessing, punishment for our sins, yes, but also an example to follow. We needed someone to come and take away all of our excuses. Praise you, God, and I pray for these here with me tonight, that you would help them to shine as lights in the universe, wherever they work, wherever they head out to tonight, all throughout the week and in their new year. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.